Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you'll find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. Today, I'm joined by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Noah Gould, alumni and student programs manager here at Acton. This week, we'll discuss freelance photographers embedded with Hamas on October 7 and the opening of the University of Austin. But first, I want to go to Africa. At least that's what YouTuber Mr. Beast did. Now, if you're not familiar with Mr. Beast, this is one of the most popular people on YouTube. Uh, has about 2 million followers on his account. His business interests that he's built off of this kind of popularity that he's developed on the platform estimated to be possibly in excess of a billion dollars. This is kind of what he's known for is these charitable offerings. So, for example, his philanthropic uh, work, he has posted videos in which he sponsored a thousand blind people's cataract surgery and bought prosthetic limbs for about 2,000 amputees. What he's done recently is to go over to the uh, nation of Kenya and build about 100 wells in that country. Now, this has drawn praise from some people for obvious reasons, but it has also drawn some criticism, uh, criticism both from people internally in Kenya as well as externally. Uh, Some of the critiques, so a prominent activist in Kenya, contrasted Donaldson's action, his name is Donaldson, uh, with those of the Kenyan government saying we are a, quote, shameful, horrible country, a begging nation governed by millionaires. The same person added every five years we give newly elected members of parliament, senators, a car grant worth about $33,000, fuel those cars every month, but we have no money to drill boreholes for our people. Um, another freelance journalist lauded Donaldson's efforts but said that, quote, it's embarrassing that a YouTuber jetted into Kenya on a charity tour to perform tasks our taxes should have completed ages ago. So I find this interesting. I find it interesting in connection with the theme of the most recent issue of religion and liberty that we have out, which is on the issue of poverty. I also find it uh, somewhat interesting from the perspective of the long-run work that we've done here at Acton, particularly if you go back and watch Poverty, Inc., that looks at international aid and relief efforts and the problems that those also create, which those aren't problems that I necessarily see here in this kind of direct philanthropy, Um, although the critique about the Kenyan government that, you know, why isn't the Kenyan government doing it themselves – is a very legitimate one, Uh, but it does get back to the problems in the governance of a number of countries like Kenya that they are not fulfilling the base functions, the minimum roles of the state. So you have a famous person like this who the criticism on the American side is that it becomes this kind of poverty porn, 
right, that you are exploiting these people. He's exploiting them by, yes, he's doing these good deeds, but he is doing them to just accrue more followers and more attention to his YouTube account, which is monetized, which means more money for him. So I throw it open on the question of is what Mr. Beast is doing a good thing? Is this a way of charitably meeting the needs of people in an international aid context? Or do his critics have a point uh, kind of keeping in line with some of the critiques that have been made by those of us here at Acton on previous international aid and relief efforts? Yeah, so before we jump into the kind of whether this is effective question, I can talk about maybe his philosophy more generally. And he actually has 200 million 200 followers million. on uh, YouTube. He's a pretty dominant YouTuber making a ton of money. And he's very public about, which I think is admirable, this idea of, okay, I can make a certain amount of money, but it's not after a certain point, it's not going to make me any happier, so I want to give it away. So that's I think there's something that's true about that and admirable about that, even if he's doing it in very public, splashy ways, more to get the clout or admiration of others. But I think we can talk more about specifically, is this instantiation of giving helpful, right? And it really isn't a new conversation. This is the same thing as far as it's pretty easy for an organization to go in and build a bunch of wells in Africa. These organizations have been doing it for a long time. And so I think that the criticisms here are kind of old criticisms that maybe he should have been aware of, uh, as well as very valid. So in Africa, generally, 60% of wells that are have been built at some point are inoperable. So don't work. So the problem isn't as much of building wells, but the infrastructure required to actually keep them up. Noah's absolutely right about this. I come not to praise Mr. Beast, but to bury his mentions. What Mr. Beast does is geared towards generating subscribers and views, and there is no one better than him at it. He's absolutely fabulous. He is a pioneer of what we know as the soy face. Now, every YouTube video you see has a picture of somebody with a very toothy, open-mouthed grin. That is you know, of Mr. Beast's providence. Um, it works. People get excited. People get excited about scale and numbers. This is also something that Mr. Beast knows very well. In fact, the first sponsorship that Mr. Beast got, I was reading this story, was somebody was wanted to give him something, I'm going to get the details wrong, but something on the order of like $5,000 to mention their product. And to, and to sponsor and underwrite an episode of, of his program. And he said, how about you double it and I give it away? And Mr. Beast knows the value of cultivating an audience. And this is another instantiation of that. Noah is very right in pointing out it is very easy to drill wells as anyone who has a well knows it is a different thing to maintain a well. Um, these things require regular maintenance and they require, um, a sustainable sort of model. We've done interviews with nonprofit leaders that try to set up sustainable models for this. So a lot of the times these end up being for-profit models where you end up charging people for water because that gets the community 
invested in the service. That creates a revenue stream by which these wells can be maintained. And it creates a sort of sustainable development. Now, that being said, the Kenyan government is also struggles with what a lot of the developing world struggles with, which is a lack of state capacity. We are very familiar in the first world with government boondoggles. We're very familiar with, let's say, the government promising to deliver a service and it arriving late and three times over budget. What we are not very familiar with is the government simply not being able to provide basic services, which is the state of the world in most of the world. If you go in places like India, you know, you have schools that are established and chronic absenteeism for teachers. We have many problems with education in America, but rarely do they involve teachers simply failing to show up at all. So like these struggles are very, very real. Um, and, because of those struggles, oftentimes intervention from either nonprofits uh, in the developed world or uh, partnerships within the developing world outside of, of, of government are necessary to get things done. But it's very important that when we get those things done, we have a mind to doing those things in a way that doesn't disrupt and undermine the local economy or, uh, you know, uh, become totally unsustainable solutions where, you know, when a problem occurs with that well, we have to have mechanisms in place to address that problem so it can continue to provide water for that community. There are lots of examples of how the most attractive way of doing some kind of charitable effort isn't necessarily the most effective or efficient or needed way of doing it. My wife used to work for World Vision. I've heard plenty of stories about churches who do have a heart for the global poor and who do want to help organizations like World Vision provide the kinds of services that they do in those countries. The problem is, is often that they want some kind of the glory along with it. They want to go over to Africa. They want to be there and be a part of it. Whereas the people who work internally will tell you, you know, in the case of like digging wells, it's a technical thing. You know, like you have to know what you're doing. You can't just bring anybody from some church somewhere in the United States over to Kenya and really have them be a helpful and effective part of a team that is doing a very distinct kind of manual labor. So again, the more – the amount of money that it would cost for that church to – people from that church to fly over there and be a part of it, in almost all cases – the charitable organization would just be better off with the financial contribution. You see this similarly with things like uh, food drives and food pantries where you know people overthink the kinds of things that they should acquire to get for food pantries where it's like kind of basic simple staples is the thing that they need. But again, money – like the money that you would spend buying those things, donating it to the food pantry so that people with better specific knowledge of what they need to have in stock for this period of time can go out and they can buy those things. So I'm sympathetic to those uh, those critiques, but I want to come back to 
what we were talking about or what you're talking about with, you know, what are his motivations for doing this? And I think that is some of where he has come into criticism is that this isn't really about helping people. It is about growing his 200 – and yes, correct on that – 200 million followers on YouTube. Every view that those videos get, if you're unfamiliar with how YouTube monetization works, if you watch videos on YouTube, you get those ads that run – People who have huge followings like that and every time they post a video, they are going to very quickly get a ton of views on it. Those ads, they get a portion of the revenue from those ads. So that's one of the ways that people like this make money. I guess the question I have is like what is so wrong with this? Is there really anything wrong? Yes, he is – maybe seeking it out for the attention and the profitability, but you have all these stories of this guy doing, I mean, really great things, like paying for the cataract surgery of a thousand people is, like, it's a great thing to do. Buying prosthetic limbs for people who need it is a great thing to do. Is this not kind of a form of win-win in a charitable economy in that the people, people who need help are getting it and he is getting the attention that helps to churn what he continues to do, which is spending money on projects like this. Is there something inherently wrong with what is going on here? No, I, I don't think so. I, in fact, there's a kind of uh, Gen Z radical transparency to what he does and he shares pretty widely how he makes money, how it all works, what his goals are. And so the problems I think you run into with this type of thing is if someone were kind of hiding um, or tricking people into getting these services and then filming them secretly or something like that. And that's, that's just not what's happening here. So, no, I think it's a, it could be a win-win for the people who are receiving these kind of lavish gifts or uh, even if it's public, they generally know what they're getting into. Um, so, yeah, I think a win-win here. I'm going to make a very scholastic decision or, or distinction, which isn't to necessarily disagree with what Noah said in terms of, you know, there are people today who are getting water that wouldn't otherwise. And that's very important to recognize and to realize. But I come from a religious tradition where we're instructed not to let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. And this is something that's explicitly talked about by Christ in terms of giving, of charitable giving. When we talk about the idea that it's better to give than to receive, we're obviously not talking about that in a narrow material sense and that, you know, it's in a narrow material sense, it's better to have more stuff than less stuff. It's better to have a well in your village than to not have a well. But part of what giving does is it also forms the character of the giver. This is why it is a work of mercy as opposed to this is why it's charity an expression of love rather than um, a, a commercial exchange. Um, there's nothing wrong with commercial exchanges. We need a vibrant world economy to lift people out of poverty, to generate the uh, rising standard of livings for everyone. All of that is well and good. Those things aren't charity. Um, and I'm not sure if we're talking in this theological sense that we can view what Mr. Beast is doing 
as the sort of charity, as the sort of almsgiving that many of the world's religious traditions enjoin us to do, not merely to affect and transform the material circumstances of our neighbors, but to affect a transformation within ourselves. I think it's a very interesting insight, and I cannot claim to know much of anything about Mr. Beast personally, and if he is a man of faith, I, I do not know that about him. If anybody else does, feel free to uh, to speak up. Um, so I have no real contradiction to the point that you just made there, only to say that you know, for people not operating within that tradition— I guess what I struggle to see is outside of the specific critiques, kind of what Noah brought up earlier, where the way that we kind of go over there, you know, this is like a, you know, a, a less harrowing and disastrous form of the end of uh, the movie Charlie Wilson's War, if you've ever seen that. Um, good movie. I recommend it. They make this whole point about if you haven't seen the movie, it is this congressman from Texas played by Tom Hanks who basically – Along with one, he, he sat at the intersection of all these different intelligence committees, and he helped the CIA to fund the uh, Mujahideen resistance to the invasion of the Soviet Union into Afghanistan. And they're making this point at the end of like, you know, well, we got to go in there and we got to help kind of stabilize the country. You know, we, we can't just disappear now. And that's effectively what we did after the Mujahideen was successful in driving out the Soviet Union. Kind of similar to, I think, what we're seeing here with places like, you know, uh, charitable efforts that go in that build wells. And as you pointed out, 60 percent of them later on are no longer working. So there is no long run sustainability, which I, I think does raise an interesting question about charitable efforts. If we're, if we're going to assume that there are going to be charitable efforts by people from a charitable nation like the United States to help people in underdeveloped countries around the world. One of the realities of it is you can go in there and you can build wells and you can go in there and you can help fix infrastructure, but you can't really, as a charitable entity, fix state capacity as a problem. So you're kind of caught between this rock and a hard place of, on one hand, you want to be able to trust the local state to be able to maintain these things going forward. But they weren't able and didn't have the capacity to build them in the first place, which is why you're there building them. But you don't want to be there forever maintaining wells. So what do you do? What, what do you do in situations like this? Is, it, is there a better use for the money that somebody like Mr. Beast or any charitable organization that would do something like building wells in Kenya? Is there a better use for that that isn't going to create this problem of, yes, we've constructed a well, but a year or two later it is not functioning correctly and you don't want to just constantly be going over there and doing it and fixing it yourself where you have this NGO that effectively becomes you know, a replacement for some of the missing state capacity of these nations that in keeping with you know, Poverty Inc., one of the points that we made in that film is, you know, when Tom Shoes dumps a whole bunch of free shoes, you crowd out the cobbler. Uh, in that local area, and they cannot build a sustaining economy. They cannot build something that will be long run successful. So what do you do if you're a charitable organization like that? Do you not go over there and build wells because, you know, it's not it's probably going to malfunction at some point. So you don't do it in the first place. You need local partners. There are things that in the developing world, People need 
help with. Oftentimes that's technical assistance. Oftentimes, most times it's capital as it's just flat out cash. Like labor is not scarce. Local knowledge is not scarce. Um, People who are interested in serving their communities are there on the ground. And you need to come alongside those folks in order to do this because they're the ones that are going to have the knowledge to do this sort of thing. Um, and they are the ones that have, um, have the skills to implement that. And that's, that's, that can be done either as an act of charity or that can be done as a business opportunity. Um, one of the things I want to go back to, to be, you know, was I too harsh on Mr. Beast as I sat here and I thought about it? And I thought, you know what? Mr. Beast is in a business. And you know what? Businesses do great things for people. And there's nothing wrong with businesses doing great things for people. I think it's a much better idea for Mr. Beast to drill those wells than it was to, you know, let's say, you know, make and eat the world's biggest pizza. Like these are, these are the choices that are before Mr. Beast and his business. Now, this is an arbitrage opportunity for local communities and nonprofits to maybe come alongside Mr. Beast or bridge the gap between Mr. Beast and local communities uh, where he built those wells and figure out a way, now that Mr. Beast has made this capital investment, to make these wells a long-term sustainable solution for these communities. Um, Mr. Beast doesn't have to do it all. Mr. Beast can run his business and can do good doing his business. But um, these larger questions are ones that we should always keep in mind, not only to nitpick Mr. Beast, but to find opportunities for ourselves where we can come alongside and continue that work uh, when, when it needs support. I'll add one more thing uh, to the conversation. There's kind of a, a meta conversation here about what these countries need to be able to kind of have long-term sustainable growth. And I think the biggest thing that we can do, and it's not super practical, but the the rule of law, basic up, upholding certain rights, those types of things are necessary for then businesses to come in and actually have long-term growth, actually create long-term businesses that are going to help people. So if there's any ways, and, and this is kind of a bottom-up solution that people in these countries kind of have to get together and create processes to sustain these laws, but they're currently stuck between these two places. One, a corrupt government that doesn't allow kind of growth sustainably, and then these types of handouts. It's a lose-lose spot that they're in right now. So any ways that these kind of rules can then be uh, – brought long-term is going to help. Yeah, I will note that there was one of the people criticizing him was this uh, Kenyan politician, uh, Francis Gatho, I think is uh, how you pronounce it, uh, criticized uh, Donaldson, uh, saying that it perpetuated the stereotype that Africa is, quote, dependent on handouts and philanthropic intervention. And the, the, the dirty little secret there is there are a lot of countries that because they lack the state capacity, because they lack uh, a sense of rule of law, the ability to establish long run success are reliant on things like that. Nobody is 
particularly happy about that. And I think it is a good thing that there are people in a position to provide some of the charitable relief because, you know, we want people to have clean water. We want people to be able to continue to live in a good and a healthy way. And we want to see these countries on an upward trajectory. It's just a question, I think, as you've both done a good job identifying how are you doing it? What are you doing and who are you doing it with? So I think the critique that we would want to lodge against someone like Mr. Beast is not necessarily against what he is doing for the very simple idea of the fact that he is doing it, like some people have criticized him, only to say we would want him to turn his attention to some of those points that we have raised about finding local people to work with helping to set them up for long-term sustainable success, uh, wanting to, them to have the capacity to be able to address problems when the wells malfunction, which they almost certainly will. So you don't just show up, do a good-looking thing, get you know a few thousand more YouTube subscribers, and then you just move on to the next thing. I think that's the thing that we would want him to kind of focus some of his philanthropic attention on. Yep. Ed, you know, there's... There's good that business can do in the world. There is good that individuals can do and churches can do in terms of charitable giving. But there's also good that civil servants need to do and politicians need to do. Everybody has a role in contributing to a free society. Let's move on to our next story. This is a piece I found that was published by an organization called Honest Reporting, which is an Israeli media watchdog organization. Uh, the story is entitled Broken Borders, AP and Reuters Pictures of Hamas Atrocities Race Ethical Questions. I'll read here from the intro. On October 7, Hamas terrorists were not the only ones who documented the war crimes they had committed during their deadly rampage across southern Israel. Some of their atrocities were captured by Gaza-based photojournalists working for the Associated Press and Reuters news agencies, whose early morning presence at the breached border area raises serious ethical questions. What were they doing there so early on what would ordinarily have been a quiet Saturday morning? Was it coordinated with Hamas? Did the respectable wire services, which published the photos, approve of their presence inside enemy territory together with the terrorist infiltrators? Did the photojournalists who freelance for other media like CNN and the New York Times notify these outlets? Judging from the pictures of lynching, kidnapping, and storming of an Israeli kibbutz, it seems like the border had been breached not only physically but journalistically. The New York Times uh, did respond to the accusations that are made in that piece. Of course, we will include that piece and, and this from the New York Times in the show notes. Uh, the Times rejected suggestions that it had advanced warning of the attacks or had accompanied Hamas terrorists, calling the claims untrue and outrageous. It also said that there was, quote, no evidence for honest reporting's insinuations about the AP photographer uh, who is freelancing for the New York Times. Um, the Associated Press also has a piece that we will include in the show notes uh, about the organization merely kind of raising these questions. So the, the, the reality is that, like, again, these are not full-time employees of the Associated Press or Reuters. They are freelance journalists. They are uh, freelance photojournalists, people who are paid for the photos that they then provide. But I do think there is an ethical question to be discussed here that 
these, again, are businesses who have a choice of who they engage with, who they will pay money to for photographs that are provided to the AP wire service. We, we use the AP photo wire service for photographs, uh, for images, for articles that we publish here at Acton. So it is an incredible resource. But they do make decisions about the people that they are going to work with. And it does seem to be a pretty obvious question that does need to be addressed here is, are the kind of people who would be able to be embedded with a terrorist organization like Hamas, who did the kind of things and do the kind of things that Hamas does, is that something that the Associated Press, Reuters, further down the line than CNN, the New York Times, other major publications should be engaging with? Is there some kind of a duty or responsibility on the part of these media outlets when what we are talking about is not the same thing as embedding reporters with a standing uniformed army in a conflict, which there is a long history of, but embedding them with a terrorist organization that is committing war crimes? What do you make of the ethical questions involved in the – use of these photojournalists by entities like the Associated Press and Reuters? So I think there's an interesting question because in particularly the way that you phrased the question, in the use of these photojournalists, if these photos had been taken by journalists that, let's say, had happened to be at the music festival that was part of the, part of the target, um, we'd be having a different sort of conversation. Um, one of the questions that I have always had is what is the value of this sort of uh, imagery of violence in general? Um, does it tell us something that we couldn't already know from a written description or is it something that is used to um, sell newspapers because um, that's also what we're what we're getting at here. There's, there's there's a different there's an ongoing commercial relationship between these freelancers and these various news services. Um, do they now have a duty to not? engage in future commercial relationship for these people? Do they have a duty to remove these photographs from any uh, current, you know, AP stories in which these were taken? These are difficult sort of moral questions to engage with. Um, but there's also a uh, this is a way of me posing a thousand questions instead of giving you an answer to your question. But another question is, and this is something that was, this story was unfolding that I was thinking about is how many professional t photographers that operate in the Gaza Strip and who have operated in the Gaza Strip since 2005 have a relationship with Hamas? Because like it or not, Hamas is the closest thing to a state that the Gaza Strip has had for 15 years. They administer um, all the, there hasn't been an election <laughs> since, I want to say 2006. 2005, 2005, I think, 2005 something or 2006. like that. Yeah. So the legitimacy of the government, I don't think exists, but 
the degree to which a government exists in the Gaza Strip, it is it is Hamas. And the degree to which, you know, everyone in Gaza has to deal with that reality. And that's a terrible moral quandary for everyone there to have to, to you know, food aid that gets, that gets, you know, sent by the international community. Hamas is involved in that distribution. How morally culpable are people who accept food aid? How morally culpable? So this is, these are all very, very interesting questions. I think these are questions that these news agencies should explore and explore openly. And part of this involves doing some reporting. And that involves going to these photographers that are alleged to have been embedded and asking them to account for this and hearing, why were you here? Were you, were you simply notified by Hamas, be here, something newsworthy is going to happen? Or were they privy to the attacks in advance? This is all things that have to be sorted out to make a moral evaluation. However, you know, it looks really, really, really bad. It, and there are reasons for these questions. It does look really bad. There's, um, we'll, I'll also put this piece from the Times of Israel in the show notes uh, that includes a link to a video that was taken from the Facebook page of one of these freelance photojournalists that shows him on the back of a motorbike uh, transiting from Gaza into southern Israel. And again, this is the photojournalist we're talking about, is holding a hand grenade. You know, not great, Bob. Really not great. Uh, so I, I think the the question that you raise that I think is particularly interesting, uh, and we can come back to the, the journalistic ethics part of it as well, but the, the value of this kind of imagery, I go back and forth on. There is, I, I've heard this explained a couple different ways, but like there's the level of atrocity that was perpetrated on October 7th is the kind of thing that I think the human mind just kinds of kind of numbs itself against. Um, Eddie Izzard, the stand-up comedian, had this joke about, you know, you, you kill one person and it's terrible or you kill a couple of people and it's utterly horrifying. And when you start getting into like three or four digits, people are almost like, good job, I guess. I don't know what to say. You can't quite wrap your mind around the expanse of killing that many people and and we don't quite want to grapple with it and there are different people with different ideas of what will be effective here so you may have seen the story from a couple days ago that uh, there have been screenings there was a screening of some of the video and again you, you didn't necessarily need the photojournalists because a lot of the terrorists from Hamas attached GoPro cameras they filmed and documented this stuff themselves and made it available which again is kind of part of their objective. So it, this is where you get back in the interesting questions about what these photojournalists were doing. Was it even really necessary? Because it's not like Hamas was really hiding what they were doing. They were documenting and live streaming it themselves. But a lot of that footage 
has been put together in a reel that was screened at the Museum of Tolerance in Los Angeles. And like, you know, in, in the kind of thing that I don't mean to make light of this, but you, you almost kind of have to at the, just the absurdity of the circumstance. Like, you know, you gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fights broke out outside of the Museum of Tolerance in Los Angeles over the fact that this stuff was being screened. Now, there are people obviously there with the belief that people being confronted with the actual footage of the atrocities being perpetrated helps them understand exactly the nature of the conflict that is going on over there. I, you know, there's something, there's something about having seen that kind of stuff though, that you can read accounts of journalists that have seen a lot of this footage who have tried to describe it and just you know, like cannot get the imagery out of their heads. You know, anybody who saw, and this really was, you know, a couple different times what changed American opinion on war on terror efforts were the execution of Daniel Pearl, the journalist, um, which that video was available to be seen online. I have seen it. I wish I had not. Um, and the execution of a couple of Americans by ISIS that really turned American opinion around on the, yeah, we got to go get those people. Those are, again, individual efforts, individual incidents, uh, as opposed to the kind of mass violence and all of that. We, we've gotten a little away from the journalistic ethical questions, but I do think you raise a very interesting question about the importance and what people will take away from having viewed violent footage like that and whether or not it's a good idea for people even to see it. I can understand the arguments from both sides. I can understand the argument, obviously, for why you should avoid the kinds of horrific actual violence being done. It's not a movie. Like this is actually things that are happening to other human beings and why you would avoid seeing that. But it does seem like there are people who do need to be confronted with the reality of what happened. And if having to see it for yourself is the only thing that will snap some people out of that, then maybe there's a reason for it. I, I don't know. I, I feel torn straight down the middle on that question. Yeah, I think especially when we think about violent, shocking whether it's footage or photos, there's a really fine line between kind of journalism and propaganda and how it's being used. So, I mean, personally, I would rather just read an account. I think I can get enough from it. But I think there's two kind of basic expectations of journalism. I agree with Dan. We're not going to resolve the kind of ethical, we're not going to create some sort of ethical principle that's going to cover every case. But I think there's two general principles that might just prudentially undermine journalistic integrity here uh, that a reader, I think, expectations they should have of a publication. One is kind of some attempt at objective or neutral perspective. And then the other one is transparency about where this is coming from. And so what we're really talking about is what is the affiliation of these freelance journalists? So that's probably a question we can't answer right now. We don't really know yet. So there's definitely room for more work on this. If I'm willing, I'm willing to go out a little bit on a ledge here and just say that the kind of people who would be capable of being embedded with a fanatical terrorist, or like, yes, they are operating as the state in Gaza, but this is a fanatical terrorist organization. And the kind of people who they would be willing to accept 
I think it's pretty fair to assume that those are people who have at least made overt signals that they are on the same side. Yes. So at the very least, if you're going to use materials from them, there should be some sort of transparency about their affiliation, where this is coming from. If the New York Times shows a video that's just Hamas propaganda, they filmed this and they want to release it to the world, they're going to say that. This is who who it's from. This is the perspective of the video. I think that's the same sort of tag that should have been on these materials from these supposedly independent freelancers. But that's this is again part of the interesting question to me, which is propaganda for whom, right? You know, and, and again, I, I want to destigmatize a bit the, the term like propaganda here. Like we have a very, very loaded definition of it in the way that we work that it is always like something that is untrue for the purpose of trying to drive people in a certain direction. That, that, that's not necessarily what propaganda is. But the same raw footage on one hand you know, could be propaganda on behalf of Hamas because they are trying to show the world the fight that they are engaged in and the things that they are doing because they are trying to rally people to their cause. Meanwhile, it is the IDF and the Israeli state who is helping to screen some of the footage from this for the exact opposite purpose. It, it, it is somewhat fascinating to me that we are talking about the same material and depending on the context, it is being accused of being propaganda for each side. So this is – I mean this, this gets us back to why it's very important I think to frame this question in the way you originally set it up. Was this is about not necessarily – the images is an important but separate question. Um, but what is the obligation for a, um, a news organization in terms of working with personnel that are embedded with forces in armed conflicts? You talked about how there is a distinction between this and an official sort of you know, uniformed state army. But there are also conflicts going around around the world, including the civil war in the Sudan right now where we can be reasonably certain that the uniformed army is also engaged in war crimes. And any moral responsibility of news outlets um, engaging in freelancers that embed themselves within terrorist organizations should be the same sort of journalistic standards employed with freelancers uh, embedded with criminal regimes themselves. Um, so there's a se- there's a sense in which this is this is this is unique to Hamas in terms of this individual story, but this is also something that and and this is a good debate to be having because this has ramifications not only for how this story is covered in the future and how professional relationships with freelancers, but I think potentially also in other conflicts around the world. Um, This is sadly something that, um, you know, before before these tragic attacks, if you were to say a journalist is, you know, a, a freelance journalist is embedding themselves with Hamas to photograph their activities, that would be a red flag 
before this as well, because there's a well-established pattern of behavior of a disregard for human rights, for a sort of, you know, mad fanatical commitment to violence uh, as a means of realizing its political ends. I think there is a reasonable question to be asked as well that these entities have all denied that they had any advanced knowledge that these photojournalists knew that the attack was going to happen on October 7 and in either the hours or the days beforehand had enough knowledge to be able to potentially tip somebody off. But, you know, at some point, if you're the photographer that's embedded with them and it's like, you know, hey, we're bulldozing the fence uh, the southern border of Israel and we're going to start going in there. You know, you if you're, again, a photographer embedded there, you have some kind of an umplic to be able to share the materials that you are taking. Um, if you are not on the side of, you know, e either feigning some kind of neutrality, right, where it's like, you know, I'm just here to document whatever goes on, even if what I'm documenting here is – a war crime, um, to s try to give up a signal of like this is going on and to try to tip somebody off. I, I, I think that is a little bit telling. And again, just what we the point that we were making earlier about what kind of people would even be capable of being embedded with an organization like that. I mean, you have all kinds of fanatical states around the world who do have at least the appearance of being, you know, the military is in a uniform, they operate in certain ways, even if we consider them to be somewhat rogue. This just seems to be a, just a dramatically different circumstance and the calculations that news entities need to make in connection with it does need to be dramatically different. And I imagine will be going forward after a, a story like this. Let's move now to our final topic, you can read here from a story in the Austin American Statesman. Nearly two years after announcing plans for a new institution, the University of Austin has received permission to grant bachelor's degrees and start accepting students. In celebration of this, the new university is offering its inaugural 100-member class four-year full-tuition scholarships. Applications are now open. Next month, the private university will move into the Scarborough Building in downtown Austin, where it will have its offices and classrooms. The university is currently hiring faculty and said it had interest from 6,000 professors. At the Texas Higher Education Coordinating Board's October meeting, the board approved the issuance of a certificate of authority to the University of Austin. This allows the university to issue a Bachelor of Arts in Liberal Studies for the next two years, according to an email from the Coordinating Board. The board cannot accredit institutions. Rather, it can issue the certificate of authority while an outside accreditor recognized by the board evaluates the University of Austin's proposal. Uh, Pano Canellis, founding president of the university and a former president of St. John's College in Maryland, said the review process is rigorous, requiring the school to detail the financial model, curriculum, and student and campus life. Now the University of Austin is undergoing the accreditation process. What we've discussed this before, we've had um, uh, Dylan Palman, who has been on this uh, program quite regularly, interviewed Pano Canellis about the University of Austin. We'll put the link to that episode in the show notes for people to listen to. Uh, but I ask you now both, you know, we I think we all have recognized some deficiencies in various forms in higher education. Um, what do you make of the efforts of the University of Austin to do things a different way. 
So the first thing, I guess, you know, the first thing we acknowledge is that there are deep and profound problems in American higher education. Um, those have been very, very vivid uh, over the past month. Um, there's also, it's also very, very hard to do differently. Uh, James Patterson wrote a great uh, piece in Law and Liberty uh, probably about a year ago now on sort of what it would take to found a real sort of rival university to the sort of R1 research universities, Ivy League sort of things. And, you know, you know, the starting price tag for something like that is, or I think James, you know, is back in the napkin math was about a billion dollars. This is a tremendous financial commitment. That's not what University of Austin is University of Texas Austin is doing. Um, they are bootstrapping an undergraduate college off the ground right now, which is very difficult in and of itself. And there's some tensions in what they want to do with it. They released a promotional video uh, that Eric shared that I'm sure we'll share in the show notes in which there were allusions to students going to University of Austin to get a grounding in a tradition, but there were also um, there was also a marked sort of uh, uh, free inquiry strain to this. Is that we're looking for unique students who don't fit into a box, and we want them to learn this tradition, but be open to inquiry. And this is one of the tough threads that that the school is going to have to navigate. I mean, there's a couple of ways to think about what happens in education. One is that education is discovering what you know. Uh, Plato's dialogue and Menno is sort of the canonical Western example of this. We all actually know everything already. We just need somebody to help us uh, awaken, bring it out of us. Um, then there's the idea of learning to learn, of being taught you know, the techniques to learn uh, that is more of a free inquiry approach. Uh, this is the sort of Thomas Dewey, modern education, although it has precursors again, back into the Western tradition, very far along. Then we have the whole tradition of a curriculum of, you know, we have this established course that, you know, you start at the beginning, you end at the end, you come out, you're an engineer, you're a doctor, you're a whatever it is. Um, this also has a long established tradition in the West. And the last one is trying to get students to sort of fall in love with a tradition. This is sort of um, the great books model beyond the curriculum is you have an invitation to inquiry into a sort of falling in love with the Western tradition, recognizing the way that it's shaped and molded you. And then you come out the other end, hopefully wanting to contribute and extend to it. And Every education involves a little bit of all of these, but the mix can be tricky and there are tensions. And what you often have in education today are problems where it's curriculum centric, where it's, you know, basically a professional accreditation agency as it is, you know, this is the box you have to check 
and nothing more. You also have people getting taught the techniques, not necessarily of learning, but of activism, of you are here to learn how to change the world, to leverage your voice and that sort of thing. And that has its own weaknesses and pathologies. And it will be very interesting to watch University of Austin navigate that and to see where they come out. Yeah, so I think it's an uphill battle financially. You know, if you need a billion dollars, I think there's something like one-fifth of the way there. So they have some momentum financially. Uh, But I think an even more interesting question is, this is kind of like the experiment of pluralism and liberalism in one institution. It's just kind of fascinating to look at where this will go. If you look at their board of advisors, it's a fascinating group of people. You have people like Robbie George. paired with people like Barry Weiss or Andrew Sullivan. So this is kind of a broadly liberal experiment that they're going through. So I want to pay close attention as time goes on to that board of advisors and kind of who stays on there. Are they able to really commit to free expression um, and long-term have that as an institutional identity? And Dan, you brought up a little bit about, you know, they're teaching a certain tradition there's this question of what tradition, right? There's tensions here. Are we talking about uh, a Western tradition? Are we talking about a Christian tradition? Are we talking about uh, kind of the tradition of liberalism? We're we talking about an older tradition of free expression and liberal thought that goes you know, prior to the Enlightenment. All the people on this board, if you asked each of them, they'd probably have a different way they describe that and sometimes a radically different way they describe what they're trying to do. The uh, in, in a way, what I was going to say about the University of Austin, which I, I think I have said before, perhaps in conversations on this program, is I wish them all the best. Exactly. The problem is we're only really going to know if they have been successful after I'm dead because it's if they are still doing the same thing in 100 years from now to me is going to be an indicator that they have really been successful because you need that kind of long run of an organization, an institution, a university like this to get it into the pantheon where, you know, when Dartmouth University is founded in 1769, it is because people thought that Harvard had lost its way, right? So they set up this organization to be in competition with it. And now if you were debating between like, do I want to go to Harvard or do I want to go to Dartmouth? These are both Ivy League institutions and to a certain extent it's six of one, half dozen of another. But for the average person in Lincoln, Nebraska, the student and the parents who are making this decision, if they have the choice between – going to Harvard, going to Dartmouth, or going to the University of Austin, in almost every case, they're going to take the Ivy League institution. Why? Because of the tradition that that represents, because of what having gone to that institution represents. So my wish for their success, is in almost kind of in a way, is to embody uh, the most Burkean line in the movie Animal House, which, uh, in talking about the fraternity, has a long tradition of existence in our community. I wish them a long tradition of existence within the American educational community because if they are still doing this 50, 75, 100 years from now, people will then begin to actually be able to weigh those kinds of decisions in a way that is fairer uh, 
to people at the University of Austin in that they will be a competitor to the people that they are now saying they want to try to compete with. Places like Harvard, who on FIRE's ranking of free expression on campus is dead last. They want to offer an alternate way of experiencing your undergraduate education. I hope they're successful because I want people to be more free to express themselves and to not have to shade their opinions and not have to keep quiet about the things that they believe because of a sense of hegemonic opinion on the campus shared not only by the students but the faculty. So that's an, I, in that regard, I wish them success. But I want to make the point that I always make here, which is, um, you know, Dan, you went to, to Hillsdale. You went to Grove City. Both of which I think are great examples of this kind of an effort in a different way, right? So to build these kinds of monasteries outside of the major institutions of higher education and kind of like we are doing it in a very focused way, a way that we think is right. I think those things are incredibly important. I would rather have over the next 25 years five more people that think – a lot closer to the way that the three of us do on the faculty at a place like Harvard or Yale or Dartmouth, then I would like to have five more institutions like Hillsdale or like Grove City. Because at some point, you know, in, the, in the same way that you can't have, um, I think I got this line from Jonah Goldberg, that you can't have a new old friend, you can't have a new old institution. And old institutions, institutions with a long tradition are important. And for whatever reason, people who believe the kind of things that we do have – again, you, you would have to fight an uphill battle to become a faculty member at a place like Harvard. But like you look at – you mentioned Robbie George at a place like Princeton. It is possible. You do have those people there. We would benefit, I think, a lot more from a few more people like Robbie George at those institutions that we are just not really going to be able to ever really diminish their importance – Princeton is still going to be Princeton and Harvard is still going to be Harvard. Having more people that agree with us on the faculty there I think would be more – would have more of an impact than this, having five more Hillsdales or Grove Cities or University of Austin's. This is the – this is another thing that the University of Austin is going to have to figure out for itself is what kind of institution does it want to be? Because on the one hand, you have – uh, you know, you brought up fire. I think fire is an inspiration for a lot of people. The, the the degree to which we could find a common thread maybe at the University of Austin, I think Noah's right that there's a lot of different directions. It would be something like an organization like fire. It should be noted that fire recently said that, you know, Hillsdale College was like a red flag, like warning, free expression might not be tolerated here. And the reason is, is because Hillsdale College is about in part falling in love with the tradition. And that involves some different norms than the sort of learning to learn, impartiality, just technique driven. But what's also interesting is that one of the universities that FIRE gives high marks to, the University of Chicago, the president of that school was originally on the board of advisors for University of Austin. He stepped back away from University of Austin and his advisory position because a lot of the rhetoric coming out of the University of Austin was that 
this nation's elite institutions, which by any estimations include University of Chicago, are hot garbage. They put it a little more politely than that, but not polite enough that a president at one of these universities could be on an advisory board. So that's a thread. Is the University of Austin going to try to be a countercultural institution offering something different or trying to offer the best version of what our elite institutions continue to provide? And University of Chicago is a great example of that. Yeah, there's a tension here between – it's really like a marketing question but also an identity question of do you want to be your own thing – and just kind of be an island of thought and free expression and this type of thing? Or do you want to be another elite institution? And to get to be that elite institution, you have to lean on other elite institutions. So when University of Austin did their first kind of summer student initiative, where they just brought in bright students and did kind of a seminar for them, it was fascinating because they leaned on these are students from Harvard. These are students from Princeton. These are students from, you know, Brown, fill in the blank. And what that does is it's a kind of a shortcut for all of us to know these are really smart students. These are bright students. And so we all kind of just get that, and they leaned on that. And if, even if you look at their board of advisors, you can see all of the right institutions on that list as far as elite. These are, and we just use that for these are a bunch of really smart, successful people. And that might be right or wrong, but that's just the yeah. reality of what we live in. The uh, I'm glad you brought up the marketing point because that was the last point that I wanted to make, which is you know, I used to run political campaigns. And when you make a choice as a political candidate to go negative on your advertising, traditionally – now let's set aside like the last 10 years because all the rules have gotten thrown out the window. So traditionally speaking – what you anticipate when you go negative is that you will diminish the favorability of the person you're attacking, but you will also diminish your own favorability in the process. The best place to be in is in a you know three or more candidate race where you want to be the candidate who is standing there while the other two beat the crap out of each other, and you just kind of walk right through the middle of all of that because you don't take the reputational damage of having decided to go negative or having all the negative stuff about you being aired. That's the place you'd like to be in. Too many of the efforts that I have seen like this to provide alternatives in one way, shape, or form to traditional higher education are based in exactly what uh, you had described of this negative advertising campaign against their competitors of saying higher ed is terrible. You don't want to go there. You want to come to us instead. And the problem is for people who are already ideologically in alignment with the point of view that thinks that there are major problems at places like Harvard and Princeton and Yale and all of those. Yes, absolutely. They're already aligned with you. But Again, come back to that just median person in Lincoln, Nebraska, who as a family, they have a choice, Harvard or the University of Austin. They're going to have a higher regard for Harvard and no negative advertising campaign is really going to address that without also creating some kind of a blowback on the University of Austin or any of these other educational alternatives. So the one piece of advice I would have for you, Austin – is to focus 
what they're selling on the positive value and vision of what they are selling rather than the comparative the, which, to be clear, is a major reason for their existence. They noticed a market problem. They noticed an opportunity there because of where other people were failing. But you don't have to, you know, to, to quote a line from the uh, the movie Steve Jobs, where he's challenging um, John Scully about lifestyle advertising and all of that. And Scully's response is, you know, we showed people drinking Pepsi and being happy. We didn't tell you the world would end if you bought a Dr. Pepper. That's what they should avoid. You don't have to tell people that the world is going to end if they choose one of the traditional long-run higher education institutions. Make the pitch for why the University of Austin is different and better and people should go there because of that. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look right now in the show notes. That's where you're going to find a link to subscribe directly to Acton Unwind or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us at Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this show. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Noah. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.